Now let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy, as we have been working our way through the pastoral epistles. We come now to chapter 6, beginning with verse 11, we will read to the end of the chapter. Now let me remind you that Timothy, this young pastor, has been left in Ephesus to pastor the flock while Paul the Apostle is in Macedonia, and he has been giving instructions to this young pastor, Timothy. Uh, The concern that the Apostle Paul has had, as we will see once again, is passing down the faith and how crucial it is for us to understand. So here is a local church with a local pastor. Uh, Timothy is emphasized, 1 Timothy is emphasized, elders, deacons. We live in a local church body, and it is the responsibility of that pastor and of the people in that body to hold to the truth and to pass it down. There will come a time where Paul the apostle will no longer be living. There will be no apostles, but the truth, the good deposit, is to be passed down and faithfully adhered to by the church of the living God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 11. May the Lord bless now the reading and exposition of his holy word. Amen. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. People of God, one characteristic of true and robust Christianity is that it is militant. True Christians know we are in for a fight. Fight for the defense of the faith. Fight against sin in our lives. Fight to press on, persevere. Fight for the spread of the gospel in the world. True Christianity is at war with the evil one and the worldview of our culture. And that is why it's so distressing to see so little fight in our hearts and in much professing Christianity today. All around, it seems, we fudge, we give in, we capitulate. But in this text, Paul calls upon the young pastor, Timothy, to 
fight the good fight of faith. Though addressing a minister, we will see that what he says is applicable to every Christian who is here today. So our focus will be to see what he says to Timothy the minister, but also to say this is applicable to you. So we begin in this text by seeing the minister's walk, the minister's walk. And the first thing we see about the minister's walk is that Timothy is called by Paul to flee evil. In verse 11 it says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now it's a present imperative and it's durative. That is to say, you are to now and continually flee these things. Well, what things does he have in mind? The unworthy motives that we saw last week in the text. Pride, craving gain. He is to avoid these things, flee these things. This is the word from which we derive our term fugitive, by the way. And so we are to run away from these things. We are to run away from pride and from craving things in this world. He is to be, this Timothy, this pastor, he is to be a man of God. But as for you, O man of God. Now, man of God is a technical term used in the Old Testament for prophet. Now, the minister of the gospel today is man of God. He uses this again in 2 Timothy 3. Not in the very same sense that the Old Testament prophet was a prophet. The prophet spoke non-derivative word. It was given directly to him and he proclaimed it. The minister of the word today takes derivative word. He preaches from the text. He expounds what is written. But insofar as he is truly proclaiming the word of God, the minister today is in continuity with the Old Testament prophet, proclaiming the truth of God to the covenant people of God. And so by reminding Timothy that he is to flee these things, man of God... Implicitly, the Apostle Paul is saying, everything that you are and all that you do is to be formed by this word that you study and in which you indwell and which you teach. Not only is Timothy called then to flee evil in his walk, but he is called to pursue what is good. So in verse 11, it says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Let's think about these things. Again, we have a present imperative. It is something that is now but is to be continual in the life of this minister. And we have the expulsive power of a new affection. Flee the old, pursue the new. Let the new fill your heart rather than the old. And you are to do so, he says, by pursuing righteousness. Now, righteousness here does not mean the imputed righteousness of Christ, as it so often does in Paul's epistles, but it means the moral quality of righteousness. Righteousness simply means acting according to God's standard. And so he's talking about his conduct, and he is saying your conduct must be an appropriate conduct according to the word. You are to pursue righteousness. And then he says godliness. If conduct references the outward, outward conduct then godliness is a reference to Timothy's heart that is to be filled with reverence and piety. He's speaking here of the integrity of this minister's motives in his actions. I remember reading Boner's work on Robert Murray McShane in which Boner said, I was often reproved by McShane's unabated attention to personal holiness. 
And that's his point here. The minister is to have an unabated attention given to personal holiness, always living consciously in the presence of God. But then it goes on, pursue righteousness, godliness, and faith. This minister is to trust and rely upon the promises of God. He is to have an unshaking confidence in the word that he preaches. He is to pursue love, which comes from God, is shown in the cross, is the fruit of the Spirit that leads to self-sacrifice. He is to love God. He is to love others self-sacrificially. And so the constant prayer of the minister of the word should be, help me to love what you love and to hate what you hate. But not only that, he is to pursue steadfastness. The word hupomonane means perseverance. It means endurance. So here is Timothy, this young pastor, pastoring this flock that is gathered in one of the leading pagan cities of the ancient world. The growth is slow. There are many setbacks. The minister's discouragements are many. And in the midst of this, the Apostle Paul says, you must pursue steadfastness, perseverance, In the midst of your trial, that is your calling in the good and the bad and the hard, as well as in those things that are that are apparently better. You know, when I think of this word perseverance in the New Testament, I remember when I was in the ninth grade and my uh, English teacher, very good teacher, had a poster that she placed on the wall of Ernest Hemingway. Uh, There he was, this rugged looking man with his turtleneck shirt, you know, and looked very, very rugged, and, and, and underneath it had endurance. But of course, you know, Ernest Hemingway took his own life. I wondered why that poster was there. That's not the kind of endurance of which the apostle speaks here to Timothy. He means an endurance that comes from the work of the Word as the Spirit applies the Word to life, not something I dig up for myself. It's something upon which I'm dependent for God to give. But not only that, the minister is to pursue gentleness. He could be easily frustrated. He needs gentleness in his heart toward his opponents and toward the wavering. Uh, The minister must be meek and lowly in heart, as was the master. Now, in all of this, I think you see that the Apostle Paul is emphasizing what he already did in chapter 4, verse 16, when he spoke to Timothy, the pastor, and Paul said that he was to watch his life and doctrine closely. And Paul, the Apostle, in Acts chapter 20, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders, said that they were to take heed of themselves and of the flock purchased with his own blood. Now, the order is important. The minister then must take care of his own heart in order to minister to his flock. That which you most need from me and from Jeff is that we are watchful of our own hearts, that we are growing in godliness, that we are growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we become so involved in helping others to do that and neglect our own spiritual growth, then things are reversed and all wrong and out of place. What a minister is in secret on his knees is what he is. But you know that's true of you too, isn't it? What you are in secret on your knees is who you are. And so what he says to the minister here is not only for the minister. You know that. You also are called to flee pride and craving things, and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. 
If you're a believer in Christ, you know that you are to pursue those things because holiness is not self-referential. It is centered on Christ. All of this means you are to live a Christ-centered life. So that's the first thing we see as we work our way through the text. We see here the minister's walk. But then we go on and we see the minister's fight. He says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This fight is an agonizing fight. It's like the fight of an athlete. As a matter of fact, he uses two words here, agonizomai and agon, from which we do derive our term agony. These were words that were associated with athletics in the ancient world, and it raises probably an athletic image in the mind of Timothy the hearer. In Philippians chapter 3, 13 and 14, the apostle says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the apostle uses athletic metaphors in various portions of his epistles. And so undoubtedly in the mind of Paul the Apostle or Timothy or others who would hear the epistle read, some would think of the gymnasium and the straining of muscles and the lifting of weights. Others might have thought of the Olympian Games or the Circus Maximus, running, wrestling, boxing, horse and chariot races, perhaps even gladiators. The Apostle Paul almost undoubtedly wants that kind of image to be conjured in the minds of his readers. Because when you became a Christian, you entered the contest, and every minister surely enters the strife. The fight of faith is the good fight, but it is an agonizing fight. It's a real fight. We fight with sin within, opposition without, and the hatred of the world. The Lord Jesus said in John 16 to his disciples, If the world hated me, it will hate you. The world hates the Bible, Christ, the message of grace through faith in Him alone, and the world that hates the Savior will also hate those who are faithful to Christ. Like the Hebrews, we have not yet resisted unto blood, but the fight is very real and becoming stronger in our culture as we move along. It is a fight that takes hold of eternal life. And so he says in verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now here we have another imperative, another command, but it's an aorist, meaning lay hold on the eternal life that you already possess. It's not simply something in the future, but laying hold on that which is already the reality of your life. How? By reflecting eternal life in the way in which you live. Show it daily in your ministry and living to which he says you were called. And then he says, now Timothy, you gave a good confession of these things. When Timothy was called by God's grace, he made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses, and he wants Timothy to look back on that confession of his faith in Christ, and he wants that to be an impetus for moving ahead in his Christian walk. But many of you here today, also communing members of this congregation, have witnessed a good confession before many in this congregation. You stood right here, and you took these vows, and you acknowledged yourself to be a sinner justly deserving God's displeasure, 
save in the sovereign mercy of Christ, you would be lost. And you have witnessed that confession, and you should look back upon it, and it should be a spur in your Christian walk. I have confessed Christ. I will not turn back. I have confessed Christ. I will live in a way that is in accord with my confession. I have confessed Christ. How dare I let that sin in my life? I've confessed Christ. Surely the least I can do for the one who loved me and gave himself for me is fight the good fight of faith. Isn't that true? And so... He says, you're to fight. You know, the Apostle Paul takes this up. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Just to remind you that as Paul is coming to the end of his life, he uses this very language. He says in chapter 4, let's begin with verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. When I think of these texts, I always think of what J.C. Ryle wrote, that great godly man of a prior century. He said this, I fear much for many professing Christians. I see no sign of fighting in them, much less of victory. They never strike one stroke on the side of Christ. They are at peace with his enemies. They have no quarrel with sin. I warn you, this is not Christianity. This is not the way to heaven. Where there is grace in the heart, people of God, it produces fight for the faith. The third thing we see as we move on is the minister's commandment keeping. We read that in verses 13 and 14. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a very solemn charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ. It's a very solemn charge given to this young minister. God is witness who gives life, who's not just watching from a distance, but is involved in the lives of his people. And Christ, God the Son, is also witness. You made a confession, he says to Timothy, but Christ's own confession was before yours. Notice, again, how it puts it. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What was that testimony before Pontius Pilate? Well, John 18, 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Now what Jesus confessed of himself, Timothy and all of us who believe, confess about Christ unto salvation. And he says, look, Timothy, you young pastor, in light of the confession that Christ has given and you have said you believe, you keep the commandment and you keep it well and you keep it until Christ comes again. And you keep it unstained. 
What is that commandment? Well, perhaps it's all that the Apostle Paul has commanded him in this epistle. But I rather think in tole commandment, the Apostle Paul uses this of the law in other places. I rather think that he has in mind a summary of the law. Loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his neighbor as himself. Because the law does not save the sinner, but the sinner who is saved desires to be obedient to the law. I rather think that's what he has in mind. But whether it's the one or the other, you also are called to keep God's word in the place in which he has put you. You also, just as Timothy was called to be a man of the word who was obedient to God, are also called to be obedient. You know, something that's very frustrating to me, quite frankly, is that there's this movement that emphasizes this idea. Since we're saved by grace, then obedience really is something that doesn't matter. It's that old error of antinomianism, and it's cropping up again in various places in the church, sometimes very strongly. But no, it's the opposite. We are saved by grace and grace alone, by faith in Christ alone. But when I am saved, I will desire to be obedient to the one who saved me. And the law of God becomes meaningful in my life in that way, as a rule of life. And so he says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Well, what do you think of that? Is there a passion in your heart for that kind of obedience that says, I will be obedient to what God says in his word no matter what? Or is there some area of your life in which you're fudging? Some area of your life in which you're compromising? well, I'm saved by grace, and so that doesn't matter. You're saved by grace, and that's why it does matter. But now, going on, we see the minister's incentive. Timothy is in a hard spot. He's ministering in a very difficult place. It's one of the leading pagan centers of the ancient world. There's the temple to Diana. It's a place in which sexual sin, in particular, is rife. It is everywhere. What is his incentive to move on? What is his incentive to pursue righteousness? Well, the minister's incentive is the return of Jesus Christ. He says in verses 14 and 15, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. I wish I could say, that I believed that you and I lived in this reality. We should be living in this reality. I wonder if it's true that the only time in which we think about the return of Christ is when we conclude our services and say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And then the rest of the week, we perhaps don't even think about it. Whereas in the New Testament, this eschatological emphasis, the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, the day of judgment, the day in which he manifests before the world that he has saved his people, manifests his own glory before a watching universe, this is the driving motive of Paul the Apostle. It's the driving motive of the saints of the New Testament. It should pervade our thinking daily. Christ is coming again. And he's saying to Timothy, this coming of Christ must be your incentive for persevering, moving on, pursuing righteousness, obedience of life. 
You say, well, Timothy didn't live to see it. It doesn't matter. Every generation of believers must live as if Christ will come in our lifetime. That's how we're called to live. Because we very well may be that generation in which he returns. The word here is epiphaneas. Epiphany. It will be glorious. It will be visible. Men accuse now. Men persecute now. Men oppose the truth now. Men disdain the gospel now. Men hate the church now. Men oppose the Lord Jesus and his preachers now. But then, on that day, our confession of Christ will be vindicated at his glorious, visible coming when he splits the sky and returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, but be glorified in his saints. And contemplating this, Paul cannot help. Now, this is something I love about Paul's epistles. Paul the Apostle will be thinking about something, and all of a sudden he can't contain. He has to break out into spontaneous praise. He did that in chapter 1, verse 17. Do you remember? He was speaking about the trustworthy saving, saying, deserving of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. How he received mercy, and then he just breaks out into praise to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, now he speaks of Christ who made the good confession. He speaks to Timothy about his obedience. He speaks of the great incentive, which is the coming of Christ, and how God will manifest him in that day. And he cannot help but break into a peon of praise to God the Father when he says, in verse 15, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Contemplating these truths, he can't help but praise. The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. He's the great I am, the self-existent God, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. We must have a mediator to know this transcendent God. To him be honor and eternal dominion. And I wonder, when you hear these words, do you understand and realize my place is in the dust? Oh, great and sovereign God, who you are, this infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, O oh, great and sovereign God. Look at who you are, how great you are, sitting upon your throne, ruling and reigning. Oh, how you have saved me from my awful sins. I bow into the very dust of humiliation in your presence. And that's the great truth that the world needs to hear and the church needs to hear. We are thoroughly man-centered and self-centered, and our calling is to be God-centered. Let me ask you, when you read this, or the end of Romans 11, or other places in which Paul the Apostle just breaks out into doxology, is that ever true of your life? Do you do that? Do you find that your heart is so filled with truth and the reality of who God is that there are times where you just can't help yourself? You become a shouting Presbyterian. <laughs> you... you perhaps in your private devotions. Lord, I just, 
I don't want to ask anything of you today. I just, I'm praising you. I only focus on your character in my prayer this morning. Do you ever do that? Does your heart pour out praise like this? Paul's mind swirls with praise, is filled with the hope of Christ's coming and the wonder of the God who saves. And so living in light of the coming of Christ will produce doxology in your life. Do you want to be a Christian that really praises God? Living in light of His coming, in light of what Christ has done, in light of what He has promised, will produce a doxological heart. E.K. Simpson says, Let Timothy not forget that he is posted where he is by the commander-in-chief for sterling service to be reviewed at the day of scrutiny and vindication lying ahead when the Lord shall appear in his glory. And even though we touched on these verses last week, I just mentioned that that also defines his instruction to the rich in verses 17 through 19, where he says, As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Those of you who have wealth, live a God-centered life, and live in view of the return of Christ and be God's philanthropist in the world. In other words, not only Timothy the pastor, not only Jeff, not only myself as your ministers, but you also, rich or poor, no matter who you may be, you also are called to live life to the glory of God with a heart filled with doxology and praise and in light of the promise of his return. And if you live that way, your life will change and you will grow and you will never remain the same. But then we also need to see the minister's fight to guard the faith. So we read verses 20 through 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. So he uses this term deposit, paratheke, and it's a banking term. It's a sum that is entrusted for safekeeping at the bank. He uses this term deposit very much the way in which we would use the term deposit when we think of banking today. If you'll look at the first chapter of uh, 2 Timothy, just across the page, you will notice that he says in chapter 1, verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And that's what he's saying in this place as well. That good deposit is the true doctrine taught by Paul as a sacred trust. Now, what is your opinion of a bank that plays fast and loose with your money? You take in a deposit, you find that they've been careless with it. You say to the bank, it's not your money. It's a good deposit entrusted to your institution for safekeeping. It's not your money. That deposit belongs to me. 
And so the gospel is not our invention. We are not free to make a nose of wax of the Word of God. We are not free to take the gospel and just let it go whichever way the winds might blow. The gospel is not our invention. We are not free to handle it any way we see fit, to trim its message or alter its content. Timothy, the minister, you are called to guard the good deposit, to guard it. That's the pastor's duty, to fight the good fight of faith by guarding the truth as it is in Jesus, by avoiding irreverent babble, by turning from falsely named knowledge, by promoting true doctrine. And so you see, we have returned to where we started in the very first chapter of 1 Timothy. And we have a very special something, I think, here at the end, because he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, and then notice how it ends, grace be with you. And he'll need grace, won't he? But here's the twist. He's writing to Timothy, but you, grace be to you, is plural. Now, doesn't that strike you? Why is it plural? Because he knows that even though he's writing to Timothy, this pastor, that this letter that he's writing is not a private letter. It is God's word to Timothy. It will be read in the church at Ephesus, and it's God's word to you. And to me. You are called to participate in this great relay race of the church, passing on the torch. You, and not only Timothy, you, and not only your ministers. Through your prayers, your learning of God's word, your faithfulness to his truth, your witness bearing, your commitment to the church, your teaching of your children. By the grace of God, you also guard the good deposit. Charles Spurgeon said, On all sides there is a falling away from the truth of the gospel and a tendency to seek out some new thing. And my, how that's true today. What about you? Will you listen to the word of God? Will you submit your mind and heart and life to the Word of God, for it's God's Word over all of life and all things. Will you stay the course no matter the way your culture goes? Will you stay the course no matter the way the church goes? Will you stay the course and guard the good deposit? Will some of you fathers be faithful to take this up right now? by beginning family worship, by leading your children in prayer daily and reading the Word of God, perhaps you've not been doing that. Will some husband do that with his wife by praying with her daily? Will someone do this today by repenting of some sin that has you in its grip, that is keeping you from witnessing a good confession for the sake of the Savior? Will you do this by studying the Word of God rather than letting it gather dust? Will you do this by loving Christ and loving His church and serving His people? 
Will you do this by bearing witness to a needy and watching world? Will you guard the trust? The you is plural, not just Timothy. But you are called to do this. Again, Charles Spurgeon said this, I might not have had such an intense loathing of the new theology if I had not seen so much of its evil effects. I could tell you of a preacher of unbelief whom I have seen in my own vestry, utterly broken down, driven almost to despair, and having no rest for the sole of his foot until he came back to simple trust in the atoning sacrifice. If he were speaking to you, he would say, Cling to your faith, brethren. If you once throw away your shield, you will lay yourself open to imminent dangers and countless wounds, for nothing can protect you but the shield of faith. And perhaps I'm speaking to someone this morning. You started well, but over time you have begun to compromise. You have begun to compromise in ways that now show in the way in which you live because the heart always outs, always shows. The fruit always will show from what is really in the heart. You have been walking well, now you have not been walking well, you are headed toward destruction Will you return to the God from whom you have departed? Will you return to the faith of our fathers? Will you return to the truth as it is in Jesus? Will you now become a believer in Jesus Christ who also in the midst of this present evil age guards the good deposit? Will you do it? O church of Christ, I ask you this question. Do you hear these words deep down in your heart? Is this just for the moment? Or will you walk out of here with a determination you will be among those who will guard the good deposit that has been given to us by Paul the Apostle and all the writers of Scripture? Will you guard the sacred deposit entrusted to you? Will you do this? Will you do this? Will you walk faithfully, not perfectly, daily believing and repenting, Will you trust in Christ more holy? Will you depend upon His covenant faithfulness? Will you be willing to stand up in the midst of a world that hates Christ and the truth and to say with gentleness and yet firmness, I'm all for Christ. I'm His and He is mine. He died for me. He rose from the dead. How can I fail to speak a word for Him? Will you stand up? Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. You soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Will you stand up? Will you guard the faith? And God's people said, Amen.